Solidarność, the Workers' Movement and the Rebirth of Poland in 1980-81 by Mark Osborne. The Party in Turmoil On the 29th of June, the Prime Minister, Józef Serenkiewicz, declared on the local radio, any provocateur or lunatic who raises his hand against the people's government may be sure that his hand will be chopped off. Of the hundreds rounded up in Poznan, many were tortured. However, wages were also increased by as much as 50%. The party began to hemorrhage members. Inside the PZPR, a faction began to agitate for the removal of the Soviet officers and for Polish control of Polish state forces. An emergency central committee was held in July and a set of reforms were agreed. Limited liberalisation, more managerial freedom and a reduction in the size of the party's bureaucracy. The reformers demanded that Ladislav Gomulka be returned to power. Fearing the workers and their withering authority on the Central Committee, Gomulka was readmitted to the party in August. Gomulka demanded the role of First Party Secretary in the sacking of his Moscow Line enemies in the leadership. The reformers began to spread their fight into the factories, encouraging the formation of workers' councils. In September, a council was formed at the Zeran car factory north of Warsaw. The councils quickly spread across the country, manipulated by reform communists against old-style Stalinists. The man taking the leading role was Vladislav Gomulka. On the 19th of October, unannounced, Khrushchev flew into Warsaw with most of the leadership of the Russian party. Simultaneously, he ordered the mobilisation of Soviet troops in Poland and told them to march on Warsaw. Gomulka declared he was perfectly capable of taking care of Poland and ordered interior ministry troops loyal to him to take positions in defence of Warsaw. General Vaclav Komar, who had been tortured and imprisoned in the Stalinist period, blocked a Soviet armoured column as it approached Warsaw. The Polish party called on the workers to be prepared to resist. On the 20th of October, the PZPR leadership brought Gomulka back into the Politburo and elected him first secretary. Khrushchev backed down, saying... Finding a reason for armed conflict now would be very easy, but finding a way to put an end to such a conflict later on would be very hard. Rokossovsky was removed, and in return Gomulka promised to follow Soviet foreign policy and remain in the Warsaw Pact. Khrushchev might have demanded more, except for the fact that the Polish events were feeding into discontent in Hungary, which would quickly lead to the Hungarian Workers' Revolution and the Russian invasion of October-November 1956. A Hungarian student protest march in Budapest in support of Gomulka was one of the events in the immediate lead-up to the Hungarian Rising. The events in Hungary, enormous violence following the invasion and vast repression against the Workers' Revolution, then haunted all those who demanded Polish reform. In hundreds of meetings across Poland in the final months of 1959, hosted by the PZPR or the state-run unions, Poles demanded an end to Russian domination. The fact that the movement in Poland did not go further was partly due to the terror in Hungary. Gomulka encouraged a purge of old-style Stalinists at local level, but he also warned against going further. A movement like Hungary risked the general rising across Eastern Europe and the possibility of a major war. Nevertheless, Soviet symbols and buildings were attacked in November. The party regained some credibility, mainly because it had stood up for Poland against the Soviet Union. Gomulka rode the nationalist wave and loyalty to him was essentially nationalist. For a period, Gomulka was immensely popular. A massive demonstration in Warsaw on the 24th of October as Soviet troops entered Hungary to crush the workers' rising expressed support for Gomulka. In mid-November, Gomulka went to Russia and concluded a deal which ended the direct supervision by Soviet officials of the Polish executive. 
Poles imprisoned in the USSR were released and could return home. The integration of the Polish economy as a subset of the Soviet economy was replaced by a more equitable trading relationship, and the status of Soviet troops in Polish territory was normalised by a treaty. Reforms were rolled out in Poland. For the moment, the press was relatively free of censorship. Western books and films were permitted, and the state stopped blocking Western radio stations. The Catholic Church was able to choose its own leadership, and Gomulka even allowed it to begin teaching Catholic theology in state schools. The primate, Cardinal Wyszynski, returned to Warsaw after three years' internment in a remote monastery. Secret police numbers were cut, and the UB, now renamed Security Service, SB, was brought under the control of the Interior Ministry, and so under party control. Terrorists ceased to be the central instrument of rule, and the leading role of the party meant the elite security was guaranteed. By the end of the 1950s, PZPR membership stood at about a million, the lowest since its foundation in 1948. Many of those that were left were party officials or those that directly benefited from one-party rule. Only 30% of party officials had any secondary education. Many had been deliberately recruited from plebeian layers of society in an effort to give the regime stability. By 1956, a little less than 10% of Polish agriculture had been collectivised. During the Polish August, the Polish October, 80% of agricultural collectives were broken up. The peasants did not wait for legislation, but began to abolish the collectives and resume cultivation as small proprietors. By 1960, small farms of 0.5 to 5 hectares represented 53% of the total, and dwarf farms of under 3 hectares over 40%. Gomulka's popularity withered slowly. By 1957, working-class living standards were some of the lowest in Europe, and the economy stagnated. The workers' councils, which had taken on some real life and fought for and had won wage increases, gradually had their autonomy choked off by the state. In early 1957, the Conference of Workers' Councils was denounced as an anarchist utopia. Later that year, a strike of tram workers in Lodge was crushed. In October, demonstrations in Warsaw were dispersed, an opposition journal was closed, and the monolithic structure of the party was restored. Open letter to the party. The first years after 1956 were years of disillusion and slowdown. Much of the intellectual discontent came from those advocating a liberal communist turn from the authorities. On the 14th of November 1964, Jacek Kuron and Karol Modelewski, young lecturers at the University of Warsaw, had a document confiscated by the police during a raid on their apartment. The police had taken the first draft and only copy of what would become an open letter to the party. On the 27th of November, they were both expelled from the party. Their 95-page open letter was written to explain their views. It opens in this way, describing the ruling class. According to the official doctrine, we live in a socialist country. This thesis is based on the identification of state ownership of the means of production with social ownership. State ownership of the means of production is exercised by those social groups to which the state belongs. To whom does power belong in our state? to one monopolistic party, the Polish United Workers' Party, PZPR. The party is not only monopolistic, but is also organised along monolithic lines. The bureaucracy exercises the totality of political and economic power, depriving the working class not only of the means of power and control, but even of self-defence. It is said that the bureaucracy cannot be a class, since the individual earnings of its members do not come anywhere near the individual earnings of capitalists, since no bureaucrat taken by himself rules anything more than his mansion, his car and his secretary, since entrance to the bureaucratic ranks is determined by a political career and not by inheritance, and since it is relatively easy to be eliminated from the bureaucracy in a political showdown. This is quite wrong. 
All the above arguments prove only the obvious. The property of the bureaucracy is not of an individual nature, but constitutes the collective property of an elite which identifies itself with the state. The authors describe in great detail the immiseration and exploitation of the working class. In 1962, the productive worker in industry created, on the average, a product worth 7,100 zloty, out of which he received as a working wage a monthly average of 2,200 zloty. In other words, for one third of the working day, the worker creates a subsistence minimum for himself and for the remaining two thirds, the surplus product. The working class has no influence on the size of the surplus product, on its use and distribution, since it is deprived of influence on the decisions of the authorities who have at their disposal the means of production and the labour product itself. It is not the working class that fixes the working wage. That wage is imposed from above, just as are the production norms, at one and the same time. The workers have no rights of and no way of engaging in economic self-defence, since they are deprived of any organisation of their own, and any effective strike action must be organised. Any organisation of workers aimed at carrying on a struggle for higher wages is illegal and as such prosecuted by the power apparatus, the police, attorney general's office and the courts. The document describes underproduction, waste, poor quality of finished goods and low technical levels in the Stalinist economy. The bureaucratic dysfunctional system encouraged lying and manipulation of data. The worker tries to lower efficiency and hides the reserves in his sector, in his sector to delay the change in norms. He makes a product of inferior quality in order to meet the norm more easily. The manager will ignore the poor product because of the factory's interest, i.e. production of quantity instead of quality. The management hides reserves in order to obtain lower plan figures, chooses methods to carry out the plan more easily, tries to escape production of labour-consuming export goods and to avoid technological progress, improvement or modernisation achieved at the expense of the enterprise. Kuren and Modelevsky concluded that a workers' revolution was necessary to overturn the rule of the Stalinist, bureaucratic ruling class. Their programme, workers' control of factories, legislative and executive power to be in the hands of a federation of workers' councils, multi-party system, freedom of speech and organisations, no censorship, free independent trade unions, the political activisation of the working class, providing necessary education of workers for that purpose, Abolition of political police and of the regular army, the functions of the army to be taken over by a workers' militia. In agriculture, both collectivization and free market to be avoided. Problems to be solved by the establishment of an autonomous political representation of peasant producers. International solidarity of the working class. The authors had a clear blueprint for a future workers' state. It is less clear that they knew how to achieve their aims in particular how to destroy the existing state and counter the threat of Soviet invasion. The open letter discusses the peaceful development of an anti-bureaucratic revolution, rather than the inevitability of violent confrontation. The least convincing section deals with the possibility of Soviet invasion against an anti-bureaucratic workers' revolution. The document does not clearly state that Poland is oppressed by Soviet Russian imperialism, nor that Poland has the right to self-determination, making the true but very general point our ally against the intervention of Soviet tanks is the Russian, Ukrainian, Hungarian and Czech working class. The key to facing down or defeating Soviet imperialism lay in the willingness to fight for Polish self-determination. In recent history, in 1956, the defeated workers' rising in Hungary provided part of the answer in negative form, that the workers must arm themselves and fight, and Gomułka's willingness to mobilise Polish troops against Khrushchev in 1956 formed another element of the solution. 
the Polish workers' revolution must win over or neutralise or defeat Polish state forces and turn some of them round to defend the nation and the revolution. Perhaps the authors felt unable to write all they would have wanted to write. Later, in July 1965, Curon was sentenced to three years and Modelewski three and a half years in prison for publishing their open letter. Curon sang the Internationale in the dock. Ludwig Haas, a veteran Polish Trotskyist who had been arrested by the Soviets in 1939 and had only been released from the notorious gulag at Vorkuta in 1956, edited the open letter. Haas was sentenced to three years. Kazimierz Badowski, also a Trotskyist, and the former Trotskyist Rommel Smiech were also jailed. Isaac Deutscher, Trotsky's biographer and a member of the pre-war Polish Trotskyist group, wrote a letter to Gomulka protesting about the persecution of his socialist opponents, secret trials and long sentences. Deutscher contrasted the selflessness of the defendants who raised their chain fists and sung the internationale in court with the sycophancy of Gomulka's own supporters. Deutscher wrote, May I remind you of your own words of October 1956. The cult of personality was not a matter just of Stalin's person, you stated then. This was a system which had been transplanted from the USSR to nearly all communist parties. We have finished, or rather we are finishing, with that system once and for all. But are you not to some extent re-establishing that system? Do you wish these trials to mark the 10th anniversary of your own rehabilitation and that of the spring in October, during which you raised so many hopes for the future? Ludwig Haas was born into a middle-class Polish-Jewish family in 1918. He became a Trotskyist at Lwów University. When the Second World War started, he found himself in the Soviet-occupied area. The Trotskyists produced a journal in Nazi-occupied Poland for three years until most of their comrades were murdered. In the Soviet area, Trotskyists found it even harder, and the NKVD immediately arrested Haas, who was deported to the Gulag and apparently escaped execution by a bureaucratic muddle. In the camps, he was given office work rather than work down a mine, which saved his life. He was among the last to be repatriated in 1957. On his arrival at Warsaw Station, he announced to those that met him that his intention was the overthrow of the bureaucracy. He sang the Internationale and raised his fist. Haas died in 2008, remaining a Trotskyist. Kazimierz Spadowski had become a Polish Communist Party member in 1924 or 25 while still at school. He was jailed in 1926 for anti-state activity and became a Trotskyist while studying in Belgium. He joined the Polish Trotskyist group, the Union of Communist Internationalists, in 1933 and worked as a chemist in Poland under Nazi occupation. He was jailed by the Stalinists for four years in 1946. At the age of nearly 60, in the courtroom of December 1965 and January 1966, he, alongside Haas, turned the trial into a political demonstration openly making the case for Trotsky and revolutionary socialism. He remained a Trotskyist until his death in 1990. 1968. Anti-Semitism. There are certain situations in which any honest person should consider himself Jewish. Jasek Kuran. The student protests and repression of March 1968 and the anti-Jewish agitation and purge of 1967-68 to have several roots. Following Gamolka's triumph of 1956, groupings formed in the ruling party, a pro-Soviet faction, the Natalin Group, and a reformist faction who were opposed to high Stalinism in the name of a less repressive authoritarianism. Both groups were named after the area of Warsaw where the tendency met. Natalin's members were authoritarian, anti-intellectual and anti-Semitic. Pulaviani, the revisionists, included Jewish Stalinists. 
Natalin nicknamed Pulaviani as Yids. Natalin supporters called for a purge of Jews from leading party positions, blaming them alone for the crimes committed in Poland during Stalin's rule. Natalin was at first defeated, then after Gomulka abandoned reforming the system, he turned towards them, considering reform communism a bigger danger. In the period 1956-58, a further 40,000 Jews left Poland, leaving only 30,000 by 1960. In the early 60s, a section of the Ministry of Internal Affairs built an index of all Jewish members of the PZPR. Military counterintelligence created a similar index of Jewish army personnel. By the late 50s, Natalin and Pulaviani had faded. Some of Natalin's ideas, however, were continued by an alliance known as the Partisans. The Partisans retained Natalin's anti-Semitism and anti-intellectualism, but replaced their willingness to subordinate Poland to the USSR with Polish nationalism. Their leader was Mieszlaw Moksar. Many of the group's central supporters had been part of the communist underground in Nazi-occupied Poland. Stalin had considered this group unreliable and had purged them in the late 1940s. After Gomulka's victory in 1956, many had come back into the state apparatus, and by the early 1960s they had become a serious force. Looking for overdue promotions and power, Moksar became a leader of a movement, the Union of Fighters for Freedom and Democracy, which included former Home Army members as well as Stalinists. By 1962, it had perhaps a quarter of a million members. The anti-Semitic campaign was launched by Gamolka in a speech of 19th of July 1967 to the official state-run Fake Trade Union Federation, following the Israeli victory against the Arab states in the Six-Day War of 1967. The Israeli victory was a disaster for Moscow's foreign policy, and and Moscow had broken off diplomatic relations with Israel on the 10th of June 1967, closely followed by other Eastern European states. Referring to the Israeli victory, Gamulka denounced the Zionists who supported the Israeli aggressor and imperialism, and who were forming a fifth column inside the country which endangered Poland. Fifth column had been used extensively in underground publications during the war, referring to Nazi collaborators. Placards carried by workers on demonstrations and displayed at party meetings declared down with the new fifth column. Rallies against Israeli imperialism were held in towns and workplaces. The campaign was then enthusiastically taken up by Moksar, the Minister of Internal Affairs since 1964, and the partisan faction through the major party papers and the security apparatus. In the press and the party, intellectual dissent and the desire for freedom of expression became synonymous with support for Israel. All Jews became Zionists and revisionist intellectual Zionist sympathisers. As Gamulka used the campaign against the liberal reform wing in the party to shore up his position against Moksar, the main theme was that the Zionists, Jews, were ungrateful and duplicitous guests who were acting as agents for Israel, America and West Germany while living among the Polish people. 150 Jews were purged from the armed forces and Leon Kassman, editor of Tribuna Ludu, the leading party newspaper, was sacked. All Zionist political and cultural organisations had been banned in 1949-50. Any remaining Jews who had been supporters of Zionism had left in the 1940s and 50s. The hunt for Zionists was taking place in a country without Zionists, and where the remaining Jews were a very tiny minority. Now the funding of Polish Jewish cultural organisations by American Jewish institutions was prohibited, and many of these Jewish groups ceased functioning. A poem by the poet Antony Slanimski which praised Israel's struggle, was banned from publication. The government-sponsored anti-Semitic campaign found a hearing in the broader population. Franciszek Czkalka, a Jew who was 
the head of the Predom factory in Warsaw, reported that the local PZPR branch in the suburb of Zolibors favoured dismissing all Jews from the factory. The chair of the branch also stated, Poland should be run by Poles and Jews are not Poles. The daughter of Zenon Klischko, a close ally of Gomulko, was forced to break off her engagement to her Jewish fiancé and forbidden to have contact with people of Jewish origin. The campaign was conducted despite Gomulka's wife Sophia being Jewish, born Lever Soken into an Orthodox family. Joseph Lidvon, in a letter of May 1960 to the weekly Politica, and asking the editors to condemn anti-Semitism, wrote, For some time, my daughter has been coming back from school crying because the children do not want to play with her because they think she is a Jewess. In fact, she is not Jewish, but it is below human dignity to explain such a thing to everybody. Politica, edited by Mieszlaw Rakowski, who much later would become first secretary of the party, was the only major paper that refused to publish anti-Jewish propaganda. Reference Joanna Michlik, Poland's threatening other. In Czechoslovakia, where there was similar persecution of Jews along with the widespread destruction of synagogues, 300 writers wrote in support of artistic freedom and against anti-Semitism. On the 12th of December 1968, Bertrand Russell addressed an open letter to Polish Prime Minister Vladislav Gomulka, in which he wrote, By some twisted logic, all Jews are now Zionists, Zionists are fascists, fascists are Nazis, and Jews, therefore, are to be identified with the very criminals who only recently sought to eliminate Polish Jewry. From late April 1968, Gomulka decided the anti-Semitic campaign had outlived its usefulness. It was creating a degree of internal criticism and conflict inside the party and state, and he began to rein it in. It took months to do so. Decisively, in July, Gomulka removed Mieszlaw Moksar from the head of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, removing him from his power base. The Central Committee plenum of 8th to 9th of July officially ended the anti-Zionist campaign, although obstructions from sections of the SB secret police military and others, continued. 1968, the student protests. Kuron and Modelewski's jailing was part of the conflict of reform communism with the party state machine. This phase of history was finally ended during the late 1960s and led to future opposition movements being constituted outside the party in opposition to it. University and intellectual life had become an area of contested space. 1968 was the point when the reformist liberal Stalinist current came into direct conflict with the mainstream party and the state. The 1968 events in Poland took place alongside the general strike and student revolt in France, and nearer to home the vast political crisis which developed in Czechoslovakia during the spring and summer. In January 1968, a Slovak Stalinist, Alexander Dubček, became first secretary of the Czechoslovakian Communist Party. As in Poland, the Czechoslovak economy was performing poorly. In order to reform a sclerotic system, Dubček initiated a series of reforms which led to greater freedoms. Dubček became enormously popular, but simultaneously mobilised the local Stalinists against his reforms and greatly alarmed the Russians. On the 20th to the 21st of August, Warsaw Pact armies, including the Polish, invaded Czechoslovakia and put an end to the Prague Spring. The unfortunate lasting lesson of the Polish opposition took from Czechoslovakia in 1968 and the extraordinarily violent invasion of Hungary in 1956 was that no matter how powerful an opposition movement was inside an Eastern Bloc state, its ability to make political reforms was limited by the threat of a Russian invasion. However, in the first half of 1968, the Polish students were encouraged by the movement Dubček had unleashed. The Polish student protests of March 1968 began with the banning of a production of a play by the 19th century poet 
Adam Mickiewicz. Giadi, Forefathers Eve, written in 1824, depicted the Polish struggle for freedom against Russian de- despotism. It contains lines such as these. Am I to be free? Yes. Where this news came from, I do not know, but I am alive to what it means to be free under the hands of a Muscovite. These scoundrels, they only take the fetters off my hands and feet, but crush my soul. Moscow only sends rogues to Poland. These lines bore audiences to their feet, cheering and clapping, so the Polish censors acted to ban the play. At the end of the last performance, on the 30th of January 1968, the audience applauded for half an hour and then marched into Warsaw, where the students were attacked by the police. The play's director, Kazimierz Dezmek, was expelled from the party and then sacked from the National Theatre. At the beginning of March 1968, Adam Michnik and Henrik Slashfer, Jewish students, were both expelled from Warsaw University for their part in dissident activities. On the 8th of March, several thousand students marched in protest in their defence. Jacek Kuron, released in 1967, was arrested again. Protests spread to all the major university towns across Poland. Politically, the students still looked towards reforming Polish socialism, calling for liberal reforms but stressing their loyalty. They wanted academic freedom, an end to censorship and decentralisation in the economy. They stressed the bond between the workers and the intellectuals, but were isolated and failed to win support from the working class. The philosopher Leszek Kolakowski summed up the reform communist attitudes. Let us consider the appalling and miserable system of information in the press. Let us consider the restrictions and harassments practised in Poland, in humanities, in current history, sociology, political science and law. Let us consider the poorer, deplorable discussions in which no one ever says what is really the matter, for everything leads to forbidden fruit. I imagine a kind of socialist life in which this unbearable and destructive state of affairs shall be abolished. We want the abolition of such a situation in the name of socialism, not against it. It would take another eight years for an intellectual opposition to re-emerge, and when it did, it would flatly oppose the regime. Curon told the court, The examining officers made a great effort to find a Jewish name amongst my ancestors. When they were not able, however, to make a Jew of me, they at least tried to make me a Ukrainian. There were days during the pre-trial proceedings that I was ready to become a Jew, for there are certain situations in which any honest person should consider himself Jewish. Kuron and Modelewski received three and a half years in January 1969. A month later, Adam Michnik got three years. From the dock, Michnik said, I want more freedom, more justice, more equality. I want the windows of our houses to look towards the sun. At least 13,000 Poles of Jewish origin emigrated in 1968-72 to as a result of being fired from their positions and various other forms of harassment. There were now under 10,000 Jews left in Poland. The West German state was a particular problem for Gomulka in the 1960s, as until a change of government in 1969, the Federal Republic did not recognise Poland's western frontier on the Odenais rivers. Gomulka was concerned that USSR would do a deal with the West Germans which would disadvantage Poland by altering the border in West Germany's favour. In 1970, West Germany signed agreements with the USSR and Poland recognising Poland's western border and so abolishing one of the justifications for Poland's unequal relationship with the USSR, that Poland needed Russian help against the threat of a border dispute with Germany.